discussion with Dr. Farid Holakwi. In session, I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Joining me tonight is a very special guest who I'll introduce to you shortly. Before I do, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But let me introduce you to my guest tonight. I'm very honored and excited to introduce to you Jerome Dixon. I'll share you a little bit about him, but let him share his story with you all. So uh, Jerome, as a high school junior, was arrested by the Oakland Police Department as a suspect in a murder investigation. Unconnected to the crime, he was questioned without parental notification. After 25 hours of police interrogation, he was then coerced into signing an incriminating statement. This statement was used against him in a court of law, despite the initial judge's ruling to the contrary and his subsequent denial of having committed this crime. He is now known to the state of California as a term lifer. 21 years later, at his 2001 parole hearing, after numerous appeals to lawyers, journalists, and judicial stewards, the California Prison Parole Board had difficulty comprehending the facts surrounding his incarceration. They acknowledged his claim of innocence and released him from their custody in October of 2011. Since his release, he's been advocating adamantly for social reform, motivational speaking at local high schools, and working as a project manager for a construction company that specializes in commercial and residential development. And he's also been pivotal in helping to bring about some legislation to help people so that no one has to go through what he has gone through. Jerome, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. Um, So I shared your story in kind of a a snapshot, but within that snapshot, there's so much. And tonight I'm looking forward to hearing you. I've heard your story myself, but to sharing with the listeners about what you went through um, as really a child, 17 years old, you're still a teenager, not even an adult but things that change your life forever and how you have overcome so much to now help others as well. So, you know, maybe we can just get into what you went through. Um, Take us back to being a a 17-year-old and what you experienced uh, back in Oakland. Um, You know, before I get into that, I think it's very important that I say to the listening audience, um, I would like the listening audience to put themselves in my shoes. Mm-hmm. I want the listening audience to, you know, for the mothers out there, think of me as your child. You know, think of me as your brother. Think of me as your nephew. And once you embrace that, then you could see what I went through. So in July of 1990, um, I was a 17-year-old, typical child, rebellious, thought he knew the world. Um, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
and a murder occurred and the police detained me. They put me in the patrol car and they drove me to the immediate crime scene, which was probably about two blocks away. Once I arrived at the crime scene, um, I could see that there was a, a large presence of, um, there was a large police presence. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea what's going on at this point? No, but I did see that there was a body laying on the ground. And I remember as I peered over the hood of the patrol car, as I was in the back seat, um, I saw this individual laying on his back with his mouth open. Um, and there was a large trail of blood running from his body. The individual was shot in the head with a shotgun. And so the sergeant came to the door. And he said to me, young man, you have a lot of explaining to do about that dead body. I said, officer, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, are you sure that's the game you want to play? So be it. He slammed the door. He then drove me to the police station downtown. Once I arrived at the station, they put me in a small little room. The room was probably big enough to hold one long, long, long table and three chairs. And I remained in that room for 25 hours. Wow. 25 hours. That's a day plus an yeah, hour. That, and you're, I mean, I can only imagine. And I think what was very important what you said to ask people to put themselves in their shoes or to imagine that we're talking about a family member. Um, and I think that's something that we'll get to probably later on is that, of course, I'm so happy to have you sitting here, but you also represent uh, so many faces and names that maybe people won't know, even after listening tonight, who have had similar experiences or have some aspects of your experience, but they might not ever have their voices heard or their names known. True. So True. I think it's so important to to put a face to the name and to experience of what you're going through and what you're already sharing. It's just, you know for any age, but then to think as a 17-year-old to be put into that. And, and from what I understand, you were virtually given no support or contact with anyone as far as family goes or someone to support you through that process um, in that whole 25 hours plus that you were detained and interrogated. You know, the first eight hours, the interrogating officers were extremely friendly. Mm-hmm. I believe that they had my best interests at heart. Going into the 16th hour, the tone changed. They said that I wasn't coming clean enough, mm-hmm. that I wasn't being truthful with them regarding my involvement with the crime. They said things to me like, we know you did it. We have witnesses that can put you at the crime scene. They told me what they believed happened Mm -hmm. and they wanted, they then asked me to reiterate the story back to them. As I reiterated the story back to them, they got a confession. Going into the, the 24th hour, I was nothing more but an empty shell of a child. Mm. I couldn't tell you if it was night or day. 
they did offer me a cup of water. They brought in a sack lunch. But, you know, I had no appetite to eat or drink. I just wanted to go home. Mm-hmm. And when the officer said that I would never come out, come out of that room until I told them what they wanted to hear, I believed them. However, what they wanted to hear was a lie. Mm-hmm. And that lie cost me two decades of my life. And, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that. The 21 and a half years you were behind bars for a crime you did not commit. But just hearing you talk about that 25 hours. And I was thinking as you were talking, I'm like, you know, you said the first eight hours. And it's like, what what are they asking you, you know, for obviously the whole time, 25 hours. But I'm wondering, like, what is it just them trying to tell you to tell them things? Is it asking you random things about your life just to, like, get you talking? What? I mean, how do they talk to you for 25 hours? And I'm sure some of it was them leaving you alone, going, coming back, doing that kind of a thing too. But it just seems incredible just that amount of time of questioning anyone about anything will drive you kind of crazy. So, which is part of, I think, the strategy is mm-hmm. to get you all your psychological defenses to come down, feel like you'll do anything to get out of there, like you said, which is often the case. And we'll talk about false confessions in maybe more detail later on. But what were they even asking you in all, all of that time? So the, the first couple hours, they were asking me questions like, you know, what did I do for the day? What was I doing all day? Who was I with? Mm-hmm. Where did I go? Um, who, who was I hanging out with? And I, and I was truthful. I told them, look, I was hanging with some friends, you know, and these are their names. This is what we did. Mm-hmm. You know, I gave them a playlist point by point. Like we did this, we did that, we did this, but it wasn't enough. They said, we don't believe you. We do not believe you. And then they would leave and then they would come back again. Wow. And that whole time, they, did they give you any opportunities to contact family, to have a lawyer, any of those kinds of things? Not at all. You know, I, I know I may be jumping a, a little head, sure. ahead, but in retrospect, um, if I would have said to the interrogating officers, I want my mom the interrogation would have stopped. It would have stopped immediately because that's, that's a form of me invoking my rights, my Miranda rights. Mm. But I didn't know what what my rights were. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand you have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you, dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand those, those, those key phrases, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And they obviously don't, want to give you the idea of that. And they, I mean, obviously your experience is what you can share about, but from what I've read, you know, they kind of make it seem like they're on your side. Like they're not against you that you'll even need someone to protect you against them. They're kind of with you. And like you said, the first eight hours, they were friendly. So they're trying to make you feel like, Hey, we have your best interests at heart, not knowing that really they're just trying to get you to say you did something, whether or not they know you did it or not. They want to get you to say, I, you know, that they have one singular goal and they're just trying to get you there. No matter what. So, uh, yeah, you said the first eight hours they were friendly. Kind of, I get the sense, making you feel like, look, we're, we're on your side. We're not against you true. in any way. We're trying to help you. And I think the they even use that type of language. Like, we're actually here to help you out. So true. So um, true. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I can only imagine what you had to go through. Uh, and then eventually, you know, so yeah, we're going to probably jump around a lot. But then when you get to that, you know, 25 hours in, what was it, you know, because I think it's so 
for some people counterintuitive when we hear about false confessions because people think, how could you possibly, you know, or they, they think the most, I would never, you know, that's a very classic thing. When we hear about someone in a situation we're not in, we think I would never do this or do that. So I think for a lot of people, it's shocking to hear that someone would confess to committing a crime as, as horrible as murder if they didn't do it. So can you, you know, if obviously it's like 20, you know, 30, however long it was now, but what do you remember about that leading up to it? Um, and how they also, uh, you know, told you about what would happen if you did confess. You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm I'm walking down that road again in my mind. Mm. And some of the things that, that reappear, you know, going through that experience was how they were just taking my innocence away from me. Mm. You know, they were, they were, they were painting this picture of me being this, this, this sinister child out there causing havoc, you know? Mm -hmm. They said that I was a shot caller. They said that I was this, this, this big drug dealer who was mad that this group was infringing on my turf and that I created a scenario where, where I wanted to take over this block. And as a result of that, I took a life. This is the picture that they're painting of me mm -hmm. in the interrogation. And so when I said they were taking my innocence of way, away, when they were like painting this picture of me and, and saying this is what we believed happened and how I should reiterate this story back to them, I was be, becoming deflated, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I remember that you know, my whole demeanor started to cave inward. Mm. So much so that, that I remember when I put my head on the table towards the end of that 25-hour that ordeal, mm -hmm. I remember I looked up with tears in my eyes, and I said, okay, mm. what do you want to know? And then the sergeant said, he slapped the table, and he said, now we're going to get somewhere. Mm. Finally, now we're going to get somewhere. I was, that's just, I mean, I was just imagining the, they just, they distorted the reality to the point where they distorted the reality of who you are. You know, they were convincing you, you were someone you weren't, but saying it so many times and so often that it seems like at some level it could just distort. Cause I've read some stories where people, they kind of question themselves. Not that all that whole story would be true, but you're just like, maybe I was, you know, not that you did the whole thing, but Maybe there's some things I'm not remembering. You know, you get into like they warp your your reality and your sense of what's going on. Plus the sleeplessness, disorientation, the the shock. Uh, you know, keep promising you as I think they did with you as well that if you sign this or if you say you did it, we'll let you go. That's or right. did they tell you anything? Absolutely. Like that? You uh, know, they said as soon as you tell us what we want to hear, we'll let you go. Mm. We'll let you go. And you know what? I believe. Yeah. I believe them, whether whether I told them the truth or a lie. I mm -hmm. believe as soon as I tell you what you want to hear, right. you'll let me go home. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case. Yeah, and, you know, they have so much power. It also reminds me of, you know, Stockholm Syndrome, where people <laughs> start to feel sympathy for the person keeping them hostage. You know, they have all the power. They're controlling you. So you believe, like, they, you know, whatever they're saying is the truth. They know a truth that I don't know. And, I mean, as a 17-year-old, you're in the police department if they're telling you something's true, you're going to take their word over it over, you know, your own. Now it's easy to think 
I could have known something like that. But of course, if they're saying, look, you sign this, you go home, you're good. Of course, you're going to believe them, you know? So uh, I think, and, and this is sad, we talked about this before the show, how in, in most cases, police officers are allowed to lie if they're investigating, interrogating, talking to someone, say we have evidence or we have witnesses like they're telling you uh, just to get, you know, there's basically no rules to it, which is really not okay. And some of what you are working towards is trying to balance things a little bit more to help again, as I said, uh, to start the show so that no other youth would have to go through what you went through to the extent that you went through. And um, there's some promising new legislation, which we'll, we'll talk about in the, in the next segments. Uh, yeah. Before we can, go break, can, go ahead. Can, can I say something real Please. quick? I'll be real quick. Like we're sitting in this room right now with the AC on. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was in that interrogation room, the AC would be on. And I would remember I would, I would be shaking mm -hmm. violently, you know, not because of it, it being cold, but because I was scared. That That's heartbreaking. I mean, you were a boy, you know, 17, technically not even an adult. And they were just treating you. It just, it breaks my heart. And I They was were supposed to, to protect and serve. Yeah. And, and they weren't protecting me at all. Nope. They had, they, they thought, you know, and, and in some twisted way, they think they're doing something right and good but missing the bigger picture that justice is about justice, not just about getting a conviction or getting a confession. And unfortunately, that's kind of what was guiding them more than going towards justice. But uh, we'll talk more with Jerome sharing his story and also what he's done um, since he, he was finally released back in 2011. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined by Jerome Dixon, who is sharing his heartbreaking and inspiring story of what he went through. And we're still, I guess we could say, in the heartbreaking side of, of what you experienced before the break. You were sharing uh, how you were interrogated for over 25 hours for a murder you did not commit. And uh, we, were, we did touch on it about getting to the confession. So what, what happened then where they were telling you, look, just tell us you did it and you get to go. But clearly that was not what you experienced. So true. Um, after I confessed to the crime and they got a written statement from me, as well as a, a recorded statement from me, mm. uh, my life changed. It, it, it completely changed for the worse. Mm. Um, and it was at that point, after I signed the confession, after I sealed the deal, mm -hmm. it was at that point when I was allowed to finally call home. And this is where it gets interesting, because when I finally called home, my mother picked the phone up, and I said, Mom, it's me, hmm. your son, and they have me downtown for murder. My mom said, who is this? <laughs> is this a joke? Hmm. She passed the phone to my sister. And I could hear my mom in the background saying, there's somebody on the other line playing a joke. That's not my Jerome on the phone. Hmm. My sister picked the phone up and I said, it's me, it's Jerome. And they have me downtown for murder. I, I don't even know what they were going through. It just shows how they couldn't even believe that it was 
true. Like your mom couldn't even, she thought you were playing a joke on her, joking around. Clearly you weren't. And they, they, I don't know how long it took for them to realize how serious what was going, you know, what was going on. Did they come to the state? Did they allow them to come see you? After or what the happened? fact. Uh-huh. You know, my case was also dubbed this title, legally kidnapped. Legally kidnapped. Think about that. That means How the police? could somebody legally kidnap you? Wow. That's what they did to me. Mm-hmm. They legally kidnapped me for 25 hours. Now, um, the courts were saying one thing to my parents. Mm-hmm. And then when I would go visit them, when they would come see me, they would get a totally different story. It would be like, well, wait a minute. They said you said this, Jerome. And now I have to convince them, no, look, it's a lie. It's a lie. And, you know, they, I have to fast forward again. Yeah. You know, just a little bit. Sure. I was sentenced to the California Youth Authority for first degree murder, three counts of robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon. Six years, seven months. That was my, my term. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would have been released before my... 25th birthday my public defender at the time said to me based on my confession I wouldn't win Mm. and so it would be in my best interest to take this deal I would be tried as a juvenile so upon my release when I turned 25 I would not have an adult record Mm -hmm. so I was transported I was excuse me I was um I was transferred to the California Youth Authority it's now the Department of Juvenile Justice. But I was transferred to the, the uh, DJJ with a six-year term for first-degree murder through counts of robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. Six months into that commitment, I was brought back to court. Now I was a juvenile being tried as an adult. So that six-year deal was now vacated. I'm now 18 in the adult court being tried as an adult adult. Now my public defender, a new public defender is saying to me that, that the reason why they brought me back and vacated back to court and vacated the six year deal was because I had names and whereabouts of my co-defendant. And if I did not cooperate with the district attorney's office, I would go to trial. I would lose and I would receive the maximum sentence of 50 years to life in prison. This is what they told me. So I went through the whole process again, at which point a deal was put on the table, and that deal was I take, uh, I plead to a lesser, which is second degree, Mm -hmm. second degree murder, and be sentenced to a life sentence of 18 years to life. It was either they basically told me to choose my form of cancer. Hmm. You either choose the 18 year to life deal or you go to trial. You will lose. This is what my public defender said. You will lose and you would receive the maximum sentence of 50 years to life in prison. What does an 18 year old do? It wasn't like I can consult with my mom Mm -hmm. or my dad and say, you know, help me. What do I do? I was on the other side of the wall, and I had to make an adult decision as a child. Mind you, I was still a child, even though I had been in 
the system for a year now. Mm-hmm. Mental, physically, I was maturing, mm-hmm. but mentally, I was still a child. And so I had to make an adult decision. And as sad as this sounds, but I thought 18 years to life was far better than 50 years to life. So I chose the 18 yeah. year to life term. I mean, understandable. I don't know how you, you know, what other decision you basically had the way they presented it to you. And with the false confession, that's probably why they were, t- I mean, amongst probably other reasons. But I know that from what I've read, false confession or confessions, they consider, they're not going to call it a false confession, but a confession is very powerful when it comes to the court of law that it's hard to refute that. So having that, that you verbally said it, you've, you know, signed the confession they are probably telling you your, you know, your real options, which were unfair from the beginning. But here you went from thinking, even though it was unfair to begin with, six years, but now it's turning into potential life mm-hmm. behind bars, which is just, I, I can't even imagine what you were going through. So you could now, you, you see how the system has like started with a small little, mm-hmm. little plant patch. And, you know, as, as you progress in the system, I got deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole. A lot of people are, I, I know there's a lot of people thinking, you know, I would never confess. But let me just show you how easy it is. Watch this. Um, what time did you get up this morning? Uh, I don't know, 8 in the morning. 8 in the morning. Yeah. Did, you, did you drink some tea? I had some coffee. Yep. Okay, some coffee. What else did you do? Mm, I had some breakfast. Then I showered. and Did you make any phone calls? Nope, not before I left the house. Okay, okay. Now watch this. I really feel great mm-hmm. because it took me 25 hours to give a confession. <laughs> and I just got a confession be, from you. Yeah, I, I honestly was like, it is. as you were questioning me in this very, obviously, I know there's no consequences. I felt my heart rate go up. I was like, like what if I say something wrong? Like, what if I don't say the right thing? So, I mean, I think that's a good, you know, that was maybe, I think it was probably 30 seconds to a minute at tops. Yeah, I yeah. pat myself on the back. Yeah, and so you, you, I mean, I think that is a good thing to remind people because I think it's so easy to think, I would never. And I, I always tell people, like, I mean, this is very different, but it's like, I would never stay in a domestically abusive relationship. I would never get addicted to this. I would never this. I would never. And it's just a reminder that you don't really know what you would do until you're in a situation. And if you've never been in that situation, you should actually trust the people that have been through it, that that's probably what you would do too, you know? So if you've never been interrogated for 25 hours, you should assume that we would all do what you did in maybe even less time, if not in 25 hours and not, especially at 17, even now, I don't think people really get how intense it is when you're in the, you know, police department, when they're coming in and you're saying the first eight hours, you know, friendly, but still you're in the police department. Then when they get aggressive and when they're telling you those things, when they say your only way to leave, basically, I mean, the way it seems they said it, look, you've been here for 25 hours, which feels like an eternity. The only way you're getting out of this room is if you say exactly what we want you to say, and then you get to leave. So it's basically stay here longer, which feels like it could be forever. Or just tell us this thing, just say it, you know, it's not a big deal because you're going to go. And so a false confession looks very different when it's presented that way, where it seems like to people, when they hear a false confession, they think someone did something, they have a guilty conscience, they go to the police department and let them know, I did this, I feel so horrible, I have to confess. Confession, you know, even from like a religious kind of thing, it's like confessing to like resolve yourself, you know, absolve yourself of guilt, which is not at all what we're talking about. This was a confession given to get out of a room that you've been stuck in 
for 25 hours with promises that this is going to be your way out rather than unfortunately your way into something even worse. So, you know, this false confession topic is one that I think is very important for people to even read up more on, you know, we're talking about it now, but to really understand what we're talking about and that it's not something unfathomable when you really look at the circumstances mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and understand the human psychology behind it. And that, you know, what you went through and we're kind of, you know, jumping around in the story, but then because of that, you spent 21 and a half years behind bars. And I mean, obviously, you know, we have a few minutes to the next commercial break, so there's no way to boil that all down into a few minutes, but I'm just wondering what that experience was like. I mean, obviously it's a million different things, I'm sure, but whatever you can share from what you went through, how you kept whatever strength you were able to keep to go through that, you know, I, I mean, just whatever you could share on that. I mean, you know, all, for 21 years, um, first of all, my family was my mainstay from day one to the present. Hmm. My family was the backbone that kept me strong. And so in retrospect, all I had for those two decades was the memories that I had with my family, hmm. you know, the laughs, hmm. you know, the, the, the tears. Um, you know, I had to grow up really quick in prison. You know, I, I never clicked up with a gang. I was, I was known as a non-affiliate, mm -hmm. an outsider. And, you know, there was probably two words that I uttered through the whole day. And I was, what's up? <laughs> well, I mean, what else could I say? Mm -hmm. And so I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to certain areas of the yard because I wasn't a crip or blood. You know, I mean, segregation exists in prison. You know, and if you're not part of one of those subgroups, you can't participate in any of those functions. So a lot of times when they would open up the yard or have programs, I would I would literally be an outsider walking in traffic. That that was my 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 program hmm. for two decades. And, you know, I, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that 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 I went through that. But it's kind of bittersweet. A lot of people find that hard to believe, but it is, you know, because I had to learn really quick, fast, in a hurry how to become a man. Hmm. I had to, I had to grow up, you know, from being this, this naive, innocent 17 year old to become a, a survivor in a dark world. Now, Hey, look, I, I met some good people in prison. I met some bad people in prison. I, you know, and the lessons that I've learned, whether it be positive or negative, help shape the person that I am today. And, you know, I don't, I don't believe it or not, I don't have any regrets for going through that experience, for learning, you know, how to be a man. Now, there's something else that needs to be said. My mother would not set foot in the prison system to come visit me because my mother was under the mindset that if her child is innocent, and if she goes to visit her child, her child should be walking out with her. Hmm. That was a reality that, that my mother was not, you know, that was a reality that my mother couldn't embrace because she knew it wasn't the truth. I didn't understand that going through it, but I understand now as a free person why she did that, you know, and, and, and I was devastated. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I, again, hmm. I didn't see my mom for 20 one and a half years. Wow. I, 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 I can't. I'm like speechless. I don't know what to say to that. 
I, I think she couldn't maybe seeing you there and also she's want to legitimize you being there in some way but it's i, I don't it, it goes back to again you never know what you do to your situation but have you ever prepared for an accident exactly yeah you have you no seriously that's right. have you ever prepared for a vehicular accident i mean you might put the seat belt on right but you don't know if somebody's going to come up behind you and rear end you. You don't know if somebody's going to come and T-bone you. You don't know. Mm-hmm. You can't prepare. And we're talking about a car accident compared to what you went through. It's like times a thousand. Uh, yeah. Just to put it in perspective. Yeah. And that's when you say it's bittersweet. My my first hunch would be it's bittersweet in, hind- in retrospect. I'm sure when you were going through it, it was mostly just the bitter. You know, I, I say this all the time. Um you said bitter. Now, did I have a lot of anger when I was going through that? Absolutely. Mm. You know, we're talking about, you know, um, my sisters being married, my nieces and nephews being born. Mm. You know, I, I, I graduated inside prison. I was a valedictorian. I thought I was really all of that. My GPA was 3.95, you know? But watch this. Walk with me just for a moment. Um, I missed my 18th birthday, my 21st birthday, the prom I never had, the girlfriend I never had, first girlfriend, the first kiss, all of that was, was if I could put this, let me just paint this picture for you. Just imagine holding a live grenade. Mm. All of those raw emotions capsulized in that live grenade. Like I said, you know, the first car I never had, the, the, the first girlfriend, you know, um, uh, the graduations, those milestone moments, you know, were all inside this live grenade that I had to hold on to for dear life because I knew, I don't know how I knew this, but I knew that I had to keep this live grenade held tight because the moment that I released this live grenade would be the moment that I would explode or implode. So I had to hold this live grenade for dear life for 21 years. You know, I had forgotten how to smile. Hmm. I didn't realize that, that, that I had a beautiful smile until I came home. And I went to the dentist, and the dentist said, you know, you have some beautiful teeth. You should learn how to smile. You even have dimples. <laughs> hey, look, I'm blushing right now. <laughs> oh. You know, and I joke with people uh-huh. all the time, you know, if you, if you don't know how a black man blushes, just imagine, just pick up two little dark cherries and put them together. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But I didn't know how to laugh. I had mm. forgotten, mind you, my innocence was robbed from me. Yeah. And I had forgotten how to laugh. I didn't have a sense of humor, you know? And, and I had to, to relearn all of that. I, I even had to relearn my family. My family had to relearn me. Mm. You want to know that I was trapped in time. Even though everybody was growing in the free world, I was stagnated. In prison I was at a halt while everybody else was growing with the changing of time you know mm. again when I got locked up watch this cassette tapes were being phased out by CDs <laughs> for our younger listeners won't even know what yeah you're talking you, you about don't right now. <laughs> yeah if, you, if you're I'm sorry if, if but that's if, how long ago that's how long ago it was. you know yeah. you know for the younger audience out there a cassette tape is a little square box with no I'm not. they've probably seen vintage ones or something yeah, but exactly. yeah exactly wow vintage you know yeah um but but 
cassette tapes were being faded out by CDs, and now we have like, you know, digital. We uh-huh. have a digital you can't download. Can't see it anymore. You yeah. can't even see it anymore. Uh huh. Um, and and so I had to relearn how to live. I had to relearn how to smile. I had to relearn how to communicate. Mm-hmm. I even had to relearn how to look women in their eyes. You couldn't do that in prison. Mm. You'll get a serious write-up for looking a woman in her eye. You know? And and again, it's 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 a harsh reality that I had to endure and I did. And you know, and our next break, I'll let you know what I did with that live. Yes, and that's that's what I think. I mean, you had to, you know, I was just saying you're surviving. You couldn't live in there. You had to survive and get through it to then, and then start living again. But 21 years, that's just, I mean, what was taken from you is incredible. But then what's probably even more incredible and what we're going to talk about after the break is what you've done since you were released and all the good that you've done. And that's where, you know, when I say it's a heartbreaking and inspiring story, we're going to get to especially the inspiring things that you've done. Uh, since you've been released. I'm joined by Jerome Dixon. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined by Jerome Dixon, who is sharing his story about what he went through as a 17-year-old being interrogated over 25 hours, which led to a false confession, and he served 21 and a half years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. Um, and there's been a lot of pain in what we've shared, and not that it means what you went through in any way became easier, but we're going to get into you finally getting out of jail after 21 and a half years. And first, maybe you can share what led to your release, and then about what it was like getting out after two plus decades behind bars. You know, um, Great question. Uh, number one, for 21 and a half years, I think it's important for everybody to know that I received not one written rule violation infraction. Hmm. That's unheard of in prison. And and the parole board, which governs the release of an individual, a lifer, um, the parole board had questions. They, they, their response was, you know, Mr. Dixon, how is it that you spent two decades in prison and you have not one infraction in your central file? And my response was, well, Commissioner, I don't belong here. I never did. Therefore, I was not going to act like I belong here. Hmm. And so, you know, fast forward. Um, I appeared before the parole board six times. And, um, you know, five of those um um, instances that I appeared before the parole board, they wanted to know, like, what led me to be there. And I was not in a position to talk. My stance was, you know what? You guys aren't going to listen to me. So whatever you see on record, that's what it is. If you guys want to talk, I'm more than willing to talk about what I've been doing since I've been incarcerated and what I plan to do upon my release. As far as me talking about the life crime commitment, mm-hmm. you guys are going to dog me out because it's, it was already adjudicated by the court. So I, I, couldn't, I didn't have any legs to stand on when it came to what I was committed, to, committed for. Mm-hmm. So at my fifth hearing, the parole board said, you know, Mr. Dixon, you're never going to get out until you come clean. So I received a three-year denial. A three-year denial. So, so at my sixth hearing, 
I said, okay, you guys want the truth? I laid it out. I laid the truth out to them. I sat before the panel and I told the panel, the commissioning panel, how a 17-year-old kid who didn't have a voice was put in an adult situation. And that adult situation led him to become incarcerated for 21 and a half years. And I told the parole board, I am that young man. Mm. And I speak on his behalf. And therefore, if you have any questions that you want to ask that 17-year-old kid, you direct it to me because I speak for him. Mm. I am his man now. Yeah. And as I explained to the parole board how a 17-year-old kid was put in an adult situation to confess to a crime he didn't do, who is now fighting for his life before them, the parole board went to recess mm. with what I had presented. And when they returned, the parole board said to me, Mr. Dixon, we're sorry that it took us 21 years for us to realize you are in here for something you didn't do. And because of that, I was granted parole and I was released. October 17, 2011. My second day, my second day home, I walked into a law firm. I had a position at a law firm. They gave me a position which is why I paroled to the LA area. And, and I, I know we're pressed for time, but I yeah. have to say this, you know, because, because for the first time I was, was in corporate America. Watch this. This is, this is how I'm going to show you how I progressed mm-hmm. because this is something that I wanted. I, my second day out, I walked into a law firm. They gave me a position as an intern. And I'm sitting behind a desk. Mind blown. Wow. But I'm living a double life. Mm. Because people are looking at me as if I was a college student. They weren't looking at me as if I was an ex-con. I presented myself very well. I masked my past very well. Mm. If you saw me walking down the street, I say this all the time, you never would assume that I just got out of prison after doing 21 years. Why is that? You know, you, you, you... You have to change the narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one reason why, you know, when I talked about that live grenade, look, that live grenade, when I say it's live, it was live. It had a lot of raw emotion in it. Mm -hmm. And when they said, Mr. Dixon, get out, go home, I left that live grenade at the door. I said, there's no way that I'm going to walk into this real world Mm -hmm. and let everybody know how angry I am because of what has happened. You're not responsible for what happened in my past. Mm. So why should I inflict that on you? This is the mindset that I Mm -hmm. had to embrace. This is the pill that I swallowed. And I have to, because again, I have to look at, at, at everybody as, as on equal playing fields. Hey, believe it or not, I still believe in the mantra of protecting and serving. Mm. I still believe in the police mantra of protecting and serving. I do. I go to the state capitol and I push for, for prison reform, juvenile reform. Mm-hmm. You know, I even go back into the institutions, the very institution that held me captive. I went back in there. How crazy is that? Wow. As a free man. As a free man. With the key. Mm. I told him I'm not standing up. Mm. <laughs> those, those jokes, they, they, they sting. Too. I feel it like that's like a lot of, but... I think the only maybe sometimes the only thing you can do is try to make your make 
light of it to get yourself through you know it sometimes. Because I don't want you to be sad mm. at what I went through. I don't want you to be miserable at what I went through. You know, if you if you get mad at what has happened, then you do something. You change. You change the system. Because mm-hmm. I'm doing it. So we could do it together. But I, I, I do not want you to be mad at what has happened. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to be mad, sad at what has happened. I want you to do something about it. Right. Again, this is why I'm going back to that intro, you know, to, to the, the, the listening audience, you know, to the parents, you know, put your child in my position, in my shoes. And if that hurts you, then you do something about it. That's, I, I think, so it's, you know, in a way it's like you can be mad or be sad if you use that as fuel True. to action, which I agree. I think that's always the case, right? You see people suffering. If it makes you feel something, don't just let that feeling be in vain. Go do something about it. And that's, that's right. I mean, you were doing that with your own pain. And even, I mean, I could probably talk for like 20 minutes straight about what you just shared. So many things you shared were inspiring from, you know, when you were 38, finally that 17 year old, you got an advocate and it was you at the age of 38 that's in right. front of that parole board. But he deserved an advocate when he was 17, which is that's what right. you're trying to make happen now. Um, and what you even said, you know, my past, you know, people who you're interacting with now are not responsible for your past. You know, I wish every human being, we're all trying to strive towards that because people are like, oh, you know, my parents did this to me. I have these insecurities, I have this, and we all take it out on people around us. So it's a very hard thing to do with people who've had a lot easier history than what you went through in much different circumstances. But an important, I think, lesson that we all have to recognize is what we've been through, our past, that's our history, but what we do with it now, that's up to us. And, you know, for you to be able to say that after what you went through and how it was so unjust what happened to you is quite incredible. I'm looking at the time, um, as I mentioned, and I almost want to, you know, like <clears throat> let people know we likely will have Jerome back sometime um, soon because there's so much to your story, including all the great work you're doing, and we're barely going to touch on that. But sure. I do want to make sure in the last three, four minutes we have left that you can share, you know, you said, you know, for people to take action, but to share some of the actions you've taken, um, especially laws that are being passed so that uh, juveniles don't get interrogated without some kind of support or access to to a family or an advocate in some way. So what have you done in that regard? So um, you know, there, two years ago, three years ago, um, I uh, teamed up with uh, Senator uh, Ricardo Lara, um, Holly Mitchell, and um, the Human Rights Watch, as well as uh, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And um, we all presented uh, at the state capitol a juvenile Miranda Wright bill mm. that protects you know, a child, you know, in situations that, that I went through. Um, again, I said, I didn't understand my, my Miranda rights. There's a lot of kids, children out there that don't understand their Miranda rights. So, um, we presented this bill to state Capitol and it was signed into law protecting juveniles 16 and under. Well, a couple months ago, that bill was, um, amended and it now protects individuals 18 and under. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, um, the governor, Governor Newsom, gave me a call. Mm-hmm. And uh, he signed uh, the, the, the bill into law. And that was huge for me. That's a huge accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Number one, getting a call from the governor. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, number two, being acknowledged, mm-hmm. you know, by my name, mm-hmm. rather than being acknowledged by H64249, which was my prison identification number. I couldn't do anything in the prison system without that number. I, everything is identified by that number. And so when he said to me, Jerome Dixon, this is why I'm signing this bill into law, 
it gave me so much mm. um, confidence and and um, reclaimed authority over my life when he signed that into law. So, you know, I am a part of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, which is an, a, a nonprofit organization that provides a platform for formerly incarcerated men and women to stand on. Again, we're talking about changing the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just look at a person from where they came from, but look at a person for, for what they're doing now today. Um, there's not one person that is listening that has never committed a crime, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, here we are today where, you know what, we're not saying, you know, you shouldn't be punished for the crime. But you know what, if you've committed a crime and if you've made, um, you know, the right contributions to rectify that crime, then be a better person. And so mm-hmm. this is the organization that I'm a part of that I represent. And, um, yeah. And I mean, the, so the bill, you know, well, and what you just said, I'll just say, you know, you're saying be a better person and it's about giving people a chance to be a better person because in so many ways when people are incarcerated and then released, it, it, there's so many challenges they face sure. from getting a job, getting housing, different sure. types of things. And so, uh, and getting some kind of support and an ARC, uh, the anti-recidivism, anti-recidivism coalition. coalition, which maybe we'll have you back to talk about that another sure. time. Uh, Real quick, you know what? We presented 13 bills at the state capitol, and out of those 13 bills, 11 were signed into law. Think about that. And that's, I mean, I think that's a great way. Let's, I don't want to end, I want to end on that because, you know, so many people are passionate about social issues, which I think is beautiful. And you can tweet about them. Those things aren't bad, but it's about taking the real action to make the changes that um, you've done a lot already. And like I said, because we're out of time and there's so much to get into We'll have to have you back on to talk Absolutely. more about Absolutely. what you've been through and what you've done. But, Jerome, I appreciate you for coming, sharing your story. As I said, it's heartbreaking but inspiring what you went through. Uh, I'm glad to have gotten to know you, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us tonight. Thank you for having me. That was Jerome Dixon. Uh, big thank you to him. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. 